Hello, hello, this is the Unplugged Professor. Just wanted to let you guys know that uh, we will be uploading every other week uh, instead of weekly. A lot of things have been coming up, not only in the world, but just inside of my personal life. Uh, and as primary editor, I'm just going to need a little bit more time in between to make sure that everything we're releasing is nice and quality. Uh, won't keep you for too much longer, so I hope you enjoy the episode and take care. I have no idea where this will lead us. But I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Hello, and welcome to the Twin Peaks Wonderful and Strange Logcast. I am Khalil, and here with me today is the creamed corn to my horned owl. Do you want to play with the professor? Do you want to play with the professor? This is the Unplugged Professor, and welcome to my Tibet Conspiracy Corner. Also known as our podcast on Episode 9, Coma. Written by Harley Payton and directed by David Lynch. Yes, uh, it definitely seems like that. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I was very, very, very pleased with this overall episode, and I am excited for uh, some new information that I came across from, like, my notes, I'll admit, are a lot from just, like, small points inside the episode, especially the starting, like, two minutes of just conversation. So, yeah, I'm excited for this episode. I'm glad, as opposed to normally when you go onto the podcast dreading to talk about Twin Peaks, your least favorite show. Look, if you stop uh, making me suffer through each of the episodes, whether it is cherry pie related <laughs> or not, uh, maybe I would actually enjoy watching Twin Peaks. But here we are. The show you literally said gets better every episode. <laughs> yes, it gets better. So uh, who is how are you to be surprised at this point. Well, the Stockholm Syndrome is starting to wear off, so uh, I suppose that it only can get uh, better from here. Uh, no, I've, I'm excited uh, with all the fun and strange implications that this episode has peppered in for us to enjoy. Uh, sh shall we start at, say, the beginning? Let's start at the beginning. What a novel idea. All right. We are the first to come up with this. Go ahead, Professor. <laughs> we start off with an interesting conversation. Rosenfeld, as well as Cooper, have a just just a pleasant uh, breakfast. And There's a lot of food around the table for just two of them. <laughs> lots, lots of food. But honestly, uh, I can see Cooper just kind of going down and ham on some really great food. So I can see um, Albert just getting a drink of coffee and not being hungry. <laughs> No, he was having OJ. Oh, he was drinking juice. the OJ okay. He's and more watching the, uh, Cooper go down on those pancakes. I think. Do you think Albert? Do you think Albert Rosenfeld drinks pulp with his orange juice? Or think he's pulp free? Uh, honestly, I think that it's uh, it, it's got to have that hardiness to it. It's got to have the thick reality so that after he drinks it down, he can thoroughly <laughs> insult uh, the oranges uh, for whatever qualities that they have. Elsewise, it's just. It's just like ghost OJ, just ghost OJ, hardly any substance to it all. Um, sure. He doesn't want the pulp fiction. He wants the pulp fact. Exactly. Thank you. Um, all right. Continue, Professor, in your analysis of the breakfast. But yeah, uh, the thing is, is that uh, Cooper starts talking about Tibet again, one of our favorite subjects in this podcast. And he goes on to say uh, that, um, forgive me, I am going to absolutely butcher this name, but... Uh, King Thothori in Yotsin, and he goes on to mention that this was the king that uh, the first king to introduce Buddhism to Tibet in the fifth century. Now we can call it semantics 
or like this was just a destined line read that they said, OK, this is good. We won't have to work around with it. Uh, what have you? But uh, he stated that definitively uh, it was uh, Tibet in the fifth century, not around. But then goes on to say that he and preceding kings of this happy generation uh, were cited around 173 A.D. and 213 A.D., which uh, forgive me, uh, Khalil, but can you identify whether or not that 173 A.D. or 213 A.D. are within the fifth century? Or is there some sort of weird time paradox going on here? Uh, Professor, I I think you're implying that there's time loops in Twin Peaks and I prefer to believe that Twin Peaks is logical, coherent, uh, and doesn't have any sense of it being outside of time or any sort of issues with time. Sure, why not? Uh. No, I understand what you're saying. That's kind of weird. I honestly didn't pick up on that myself. I'm, I'm glad you you had a keen eye or ear for that. That is very strange, because if anyone would to know their facts, it'd be Cooper. Yeah, it, it, it's, again, um, not even being around it. And again, it just might have just been uh, past... Uh, pass of the knowledge or just uh, missing in the line read. But no, this cut was still chosen amongst these. And uh, with some of the weird uh, time gaps we've had in Twin Peaks uh, with the red curtain room uh, makes me all the more curious if he even kind of thinks and harkens to that for the situation. Uh, I don't know whether or not the old Cooper inside of the red curtain room is uh, 300 years worth of di- 200 to 300 years of difference. Um <laughs> But hey, uh, who knows? Uh, Not to mention that uh, it's fun working with the subtitles with this uh, because it's uh, inside of the subtitles for the Blu-rays, the official Blu-rays. It says uh, King Hathatha, the complete mystery box Mm -hmm, set. Absolutely. King Hathatha Rignamputsan. I'm more so describing on how the letters sound out, um, mind you. So again, gonna butcher some language here. Forgive me. Meanwhile, uh, the source that I could find that was very close to it that also matched some of the details, including uh, one of the cited years, 173 AD, was King Thothori Nyatsin. Um, Cooper does say it really fast. So I don't know the necessary history behind (laughs) some of these um, subtitle choices, but it's been fun trying to translate these weird um, spellings. Um, Yeah, this isn't the first time that the subtitles on the Complete Mystery Blu-ray have had issues translating other languages and especially names. Mm Um, if you don't mind, I want to just make a quick mention. Uh, yep, we got to wrap our stuff up in dog, remember? Uh, nice uh, French treat there. Yeah, there was that. I guess it's not just names then. But if <laughs> I give you, yeah, make a quick a quick segue here, and we'll go back to the breakfast discussion. Um, we had previously in our episode five podcast been asking what Ben Horn was talking about when he asked one of the Norwegians, Thor, if he was familiar with the word Luhamsta. And when we asked that, we legitimately were going off of the subtitles uh, that said the word Luhamsta. Uh, And then I got a contact through our email um, from one of our listeners who actually pointed out that the subtitle was wrong. It should have said Newt Hampson, which makes a whole lot more sense because Newt Hampson (laughs) is an actual person and Luhamsta doesn't seem to be an actual word. Newt Newt Hampson was a 20th century Norwegian author. So again, Norwegian makes sense, who uh, 
in terms of his writing style, he rejected realism. So he thought that writers in that time period should focus less on trying to make it realistic and go more psychological or kind of more romantic. So more like heightened reality. And um, when I was doing a little bit of like quick research on him, he's cited as an influence on Franz Kafka, who is a writer that David Lynch will reference later in the series. Um, and then he's also an influence on Herman Hess, who uh, it was a big influence on Kunihiko Ikahara, who is the writer and director of uh, Revolutionary Girl Utena, which is another series that you and I have spent some time analyzing. Yes. Um, so Newt Homsen's ideas actually translate pretty logically as a reference. Uh, that being said, I don't want to put out a plug for him. I haven't read his material. And also, apparently, he liked Hitler. So, like, I'm not saying Newt Hampson's a good guy, right? <laughs> if anything, Benjamin Horn name-dropping him, we might have to cancel Ben. Ben might have to get canceled now, uh, unfortunately. Uh, he was mm. on such a good streak. Um, but, no, I want to just give a quick shout-out, if you don't mind. Uh, I have the user's name here. Uh, goes by OKBob on Twitter, the Twitter handle at FrankDarigo3. Uh, thank you, listener, for pointing out that it was not Lou Homsta. Uh, and you're right, Professor, this is not the first time then. I don't mm -hmm. know what is going on with the subtitles, because I was watching the episode again on Netflix, and the Netflix subtitles were different as well, so... <laughs> it's I almost as if people wrote those. Um. <laughs> yeah. We need to replace people with machines as soon as we possibly can. I, I mean, who knows that even machines wrote these? Maybe Dreams themselves wrote some of these subtitles just to give it that extra strange quality. Uh, <laughs> but regardless, uh, I'm very thankful that uh, you were able to uh, find that information, and again, Frankie baby, thank you so much uh, for doing that because that'll only give us uh, all the more of a keen eye throughout the series. Um, but yeah. So returning our keen eye back to the barbershop quartet breakfast scene. Ooh, I uh, love that scene so much. And as they continue to have their conversation, <laughs> there's this point in which literally the uh, tone of the barbershop barbershop quartet just kind of picks up in almost like flat notes and it becomes more tense. Mm -hmm. Ooh, ooh, mwah, beautiful. But yes, uh, continuing on, it is mentioned that uh, the first king of that was uh, to bring Buddhism to uh, Tibet was touched, was also the first one touched by the Dharma amongst them. Uh, when I was looking this up, the uh, best definition that I could find uh, for the Dharma was um, the understanding of the nature of reality regarded as universal truth, cosmic law and order. Uh, Cooper goes on to say that Twin Peaks may be more relative to Tibet than Rosenfeld realizes. If we consider someone with the Dharma, someone enlightened with influences on universal truths, Pete and Martel. let's say behaves kind of like a king in an enlightened period, let's face it, Laura Palmer fits this bill rather well. Uh, and not to I think you're mistaking Laura Palmer for Pete Martell. Uh, <laughs> My evidence, my evidence is foolproof. Uh, David Lynch is a practicer of transcendental meditation. He's a big believer in meditation, which obviously has its its roots in a lot of the same philosophy that uh, Tibetan Buddhism has. And David Lynch's book on meditation is called Catching the Big Fish. <laughs> therefore, well, I think there's a linkage happening here between fishing and meditation and therefore one who has been touched by the Dharma. Well, Khalil, Pete I think Martel. well, Khalil, I think you need to get your fish out of the percolator right now, because clearly you are sick in the mind because, no, uh, the closest person to this sense of enlightenment and influence, um, if we were to make a 
sense a parallel, especially with Cooper's excitement on this case, Laura Palmer fits this bill quite well. I think that the comparison is quite apt and really fun. Uh, so, yes, I'm really glad for this uh, return to Tibet. Not only that, but also we get to explore more uh, cosmic possibilities if we are to consider the Dharma. Um, Say, for example, considering the Dharma uh, or just cosmic powers in play, the framing for Bob, the giant and the red curtain room man becomes all the more fun. Uh, beings of cosmic power and universal truths, or at the very least, the giant and the red curtain room man can be uh, related to the latter, a sense of universal truths. They don't seem to be trying to... Uh, push Cooper by the sense of lies or anything like this. Um, literally, a plot point with the friendly giant is to lead Cooper on with various truths. Um, assuming you trust him. Yes, assuming... Well, here's the thing. You can lead someone with truths, but the best lies are the ones wrapped with truth. Uh, so maybe Cooper might be looking for answers where he uh, can only assume to find them. And yes, I'm still suspicious about the friendly giant because of a scene we're going to get to later. Uh, but we also get to meet another uh, person inside this episode that, <laughs> let's face it, might be a part of this sort of series of cosmic entities. Uh, the little Tremon boy uh, and his use of <laughs> yeah. magic and teleporting porn. Yeah, well, we will we'll talk about that. I, I do want to call you out a little bit on this, Professor, because I'm not 100 percent less sold that Laura Palmer is the one most likely to be touched by the Dharma. I think if we're looking at Twin Peaks residents who have the most spiritual awareness, I would go to Margaret Lanterman, the log lady, 100 percent. I think she's the one most in tune with the spirits. I disagree. I think that she can communicate with the spirits, sure, but she is more of a messenger than anything. She is not a leader figure uh, similar to a king touched by the Dharma. King is the key term right here, someone who is considered a leader. And for someone who has this ominous sense of influence that wonders whether or not that if she didn't have this sense of influence, if her life would be different, that'd be one thing. Uh, as far as the log lady goes, she is even talked down uh, at the double R for like putting her picture on the wall. Uh, if she was uh, truly this king-like entity uh, that is supposed to enlighten people, I think more people would put their pitch on the walls at the double R. <laughs> so Laura's dharma is the fact that she can, like, seduce men? It's a sense... Is that her dharma? <laughs> uh, it's, again, uh, a sense of cosmic law and order. She is reworking her surroundings uh, in order to reach a new cosmic truth. Whether or not that truth is going to be good or ugly or uh, any other sense, uh, we made a comment in a previous podcast where... Sometimes when considering uh, on a cosmic level, uh, it might just be something beyond our understanding. Um, so, yeah, I would say that if we were to compare kings uh, and those who are enlightened and uh, those who influence others, I'm sure the log lady does uh, convince Briggs to kind of move things through. But that's only being led by the log unless we are to assume the log is the Dharma. <laughs> Well, OK, I'll give you one. More, I'll give one more shot out there and then we'll move on because I don't want to belabor this too much. I think your ideas of Laura makes sense. Okay. Uh, I think it's I think it's fair with the uh, things we've been given. I want to put out another possibility. Then you mentioned him. Um, what about Garland Briggs? He's a person in authority. 
by no means is he a king, but I wouldn't consider the homecoming queen a king either. She's only a homecoming queen in name. Garland Briggs does have a power and authority within the government, so to speak. He's in charge of an important mission, um, but he is someone who is very much in tune with the spirituality as well through his visions. He is someone who is on some sort of secret mission that other people are not privy to in a sense that he has been uh, selected, isolated out as someone special. Um, And I think you can make a case that Garland Briggs, possibly with his speech to Bobby, we saw in the previous episode, can be assumed to have that sort of inner peace and tranquility. That is true. But at the same time, uh, if we were to consider episode two of Twin Peaks, when we're talking about um, someone to return uh, to their country, I don't see that Briggs has at any point left away, even if he is on the sidelines. I don't feel that there is any absence of this kingly rule. Not only that, but the largest amounts of influence he has given uh, amongst these are conversations between two people. That is going to be Bobby and that is going to be Cooper. It's not to say he is absent of influence, but I believe that his position is only uh, to give more answers to Cooper uh, concerning uh, validating these cosmic entities. Uh, Not necessarily touched, but possibly being on an outside window looking in on these cosmic powers that may be beyond his understanding. Now, maybe he might have a greater understanding we don't know of yet. Uh, We don't know much about his position because he is incredibly secretive about it. Uh, But I still feel a Mm -hmm. much stronger case at the moment that Laura Palmer, not only as a leader figure, an influencer, uh, as well as someone who is uh, absolutely gone and people would only hope would come back uh, from her overall impact. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't see these impacts being the same for um, others, if you will. Okay. Thank you for indulging me and uh, putting you through that gauntlet. I, I wanted to hear how you'd respond to other candidates. Absolutely. So thank no, you. keep bringing them up whenever you get a chance to, because I'd like to explore this. I think that Tibet is very important, and anything that we hear about Tibet is just going to lead me down a fun rabbit hole. Mind you, I was going to uh, check out a book that uh, cited some examples of the Enlightened Period, as well as these kings. Uh, but when I looked at it on, on Amazon, it was about a $1,500 book. And forgive me, listeners, I don't have that sort of money to throw out for the study of Tibet at the moment. So um, if you want to donate. No, no, <laughs> listeners. no, I refuse that. <laughs> listeners, overall, your ear and time are something that I appreciate. But buying a $1,500 book for a overall series that has only so many um, subscribers and listeners right now, not to mention I... I'm Look, going if, to have a hard enough time working through the Twin Peaks books. If Jeff Bezos is one of our listeners <laughs> and he wants to just give you some money hmm. it, to him, which is like pennies, right? If, if some billionaire wants to just okay, give so you like $1,600, who are we to say no? Sure, That's a gift. Sure. <laughs> Don't donate to us unless you're a billionaire. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, was there anything else involving Tibet, the Dalai Lama, that you wanted to address during this conversation? Uh, was there anything else that struck you or was that the summation for now? I think that'll be the summation for now. For now, I would like to continue on uh, talking about uh, the overall uh, idea of cosmic entities, if that's all right. I was going to just say we should wrap up the breakfast because we do get a couple more pieces of information at the breakfast table. Okay. Um, before they leave, uh, we get Albert apparently did talk to the room service waiter who you speculated could be the one who shot Cooper. 
Uh, and he said, you know, the world's most decrepit room service waiter remembers nothing out of the ordinary about the night. And he refers to him as Senior Drool Cup. Um, so that that's a nickname We've we can give him before we're referring to him. We've got a name. Senior Drool we Cup. got a name to a suspect. Uh, so yes. th- now we have uh, a total of one suspects on this we list. Need to, we need to reprint the posters. Have you seen this man? Have you seen this man needs to have Senior Drool Cup <laughs> on it? Not not Bob. He's not suspicious. Um, and then and then also, interestingly, we get this comment that Albert says that the reason he came back to Twin Peaks wasn't just because Cooper had been shot and he was nearby, but also because uh, Cooper's former partner, uh, Wyndham Earl, Agent Wyndham Earl, apparently flew the coop. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know much about that character. Um, there's implications that. He was sent to what is called a laughing academy. So he was put away to some degree um, and has it broke out. Uh, laughing Academy, I assume, is going to be uh, an insane asylum or something adjacent to it. Um, yeah, some sort of mental institution. Yep. Yep. And for Cooper's reaction was very stark. Like the moment this got brought up, you know, he kind of he kind of almost leaned back in his chair and was like, but Agent Earl is retired. Like he, he seemed very concerned about this. And for Albert to make that as a point of a reason of coming back, I think that does lead to speculation that this Wyndham Earl thing might go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Specifically south. You just don't know where. <laughs> I, I, I'm concerned itself. Yeah, south. I mean, do you have any other reactions about this? Um, Nothing at the moment uh, that's too concrete. Uh, we just know that overall it's just an entity that um, Cooper is concerned about. And for Cooper to be just generally concerned is, well, concerning. Um, I am excited to see more uh, of this individual and the fact that someone who may not be in the right mindset uh, to maybe make an appearance inside of a place where many people aren't exactly in the best mindsets uh, will definitely be a fun dynamic. Who knows? Maybe this sense of influence may have... Um, connections enough with Cooper's past cases that that's where his um, interests have peaked, if you will, um, with this overall case as well <laughs> as the under nail cases. Um, maybe there might have been something that happened to his previous partner that um, caused this sort of um, psychological stake that uh, Cooper may have to face himself. So, yeah, no, I, I'm genuinely just excited to see more of Cooper's past. Valid takeaway. Uh, it sounded like you want to talk about more spiritual entities. So do you mind if I transition to Mrs. Tremond? Oh, um, if you if it's all right, um, we uh, if I could transition to uh, Tremond uh, that way that we can bounce off some ideas. Well, excuse me. I wanted to tra- <laughs> I wanted to transition to Mrs. Tremond. What are you talking well, that's about? That's fine. Here? But I'm trying to make connections with Tremond uh, right now because we're considering the Dharma. Uh, I was going to let you after I did the transitioning. <laughs> I have the power here. Uh, yeah. Okay, it's it's fine. Go ahead. Talk about Tremond. Let your take over. Yo, thank you. Thank you. Uh, if we consider the Dharma or just cosmic powers in play, the framing of Bob the Giant and the Red Curtain Room Man becomes all the more interesting. Beings of cosmic power and universal truths, or at the very least, the Giant of the Red Curtain Room Man can be closely related to the latter case of cosmic uh, uh, truths, if you will. Um, it 
it just makes things all more curious, um, especially since we get to uh, meet the Tremon boy uh, when Donna actually uh, goes out on the Meals of Wheels program and visits this old lady, as well as what was it, Khalil, his her nephew? Um, this is her grandson. Grandson. Thank you. Um, and apparently he is taking up to magic, whether or not this magic is going to be uh, black magic or uh, <laughs> any sort of great cosmic magic or anything like that has been yet to be seen. Um, but no, he's got strange powers that I wonder are also connected to these other cosmic powers. Um, what thoughts do you have on the Tremon boy uh, by chance? Well, uh, I think what's first of note for me is who is playing the Tremond boy. Uh, the grandson is played by David Lynch's son. Oh, and those familiar with what David Lynch looked like at the time, it's like they groomed the kid to look like him. He's, <laughs> he's wearing like the kind of black suit. His hair's kind of up in that way. I mean, not nearly as glorious as Lynch's hair, but but definitely uh -huh. Lynch representing. And we already have Lynch's voice being used for a character with Gordon Cole, who is the, uh, you know, the FBI, uh, you know, not commissioner, but, you know, the one who's been kind of giving orders to Cooper and Albert. So you already have Lynch himself in the in the work. We've had um, weird meta parallels with uh, Invitation to Love in season one. And so I think there's a fair ground to look at uh the boy who in um, not in the show, but in the book Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, he's referred to as Pierre. So, I mean, you can if you want to call him Pierre, we can call him <laughs> that. That is canonically as name, according to the book. Um, OK, Pierre. Being David Lynch's son, but also importantly, being a magician seems really suspect because we got that poem that the one armed man recited in episode two during the dream sequence in the darkness of future past, a magician longs to see. Right. So there's this idea of yes. a magician already put in place from episode two uh, and that yeah. preceded the dream sequence. So when you speculate, you know, is Pierre associated with that? He's the first magician we've seen, you know, and whether you want to mm -hmm. read magician very literally, I don't know. But I will say that it's kind of suspect that Lynch would put his own son in there, make him look like him and call him the magician. <laughs> the other <laughs> that is very curious. The other thing that uh, caught me off guard um, and got my uh, crazy mind going was the way that he sat inside of his lounge chair. Uh, the only other character that we know that has uh, enjoyed a nice little lounge chair uh, was the person within the red curtain room. Um, and that's kind of what also got me going. Um, like, sure, he, uh, both of them are wearing different wear. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the right curtain room man uh, is wearing a nice little open red suit. Meanwhile, the trim boy is wearing a nice little black suit that's all buttoned up and everything. Uh, I tried to identify their uh, eye color. But uh, I know that the little boy def definitely has a nice set of blue eyes. Uh, I couldn't tell between blue or green for the uh, gentleman in the red curtain room. So uh, seeing as Cooper was a little bit older, I was wondering if there may have been an interesting like time transition to consider mm. with this strange mystical boy. Again, me just trying to reach out for different connections, being another fun yet weird uh, person within Twin Peaks. I mean, he already seems taller than the man from another he, place. He's slouching on that uh, chair, so I'm unsure. Um, also, right. 
if he was standing upright, I think he'd be taller then. Potentially. Um, not to say it's not possible. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just trying to respond, I guess, thinking through it. Yeah. Um, and again, the way you can even argue if he is representing Lynch as well, uh, the magic could be TV or movie magic, right? Yeah, absolutely. And sitting in the chair kind of reminds me of the director's chair, mm-hmm. right? This kid seems to be in control. I just like um, I just like to think that uh, David Lynch, when he he was a boy, he would practice uh, teleporting cream corn for his magic acts. Uh, I like to think that this is just. What do you think of cream corn? Like, because the log lady talked about cream corn in her opening, which was obviously made after this episode had aired, mm-hmm. and we see cream corn very ominously referred to by the by uh, Mrs. Tremond. She did not want cream corn. She very specifically did not ask for yes. cream corn. Uh, what do you make of that? Um, she didn't want cream corn. There was something on her plate that she absolutely had distaste for, and her grandson took care of it. Um, I don't have anything at the moment that's very definitive for cream corn. I feel that uh, if we were to put any sort of slop that uh, looked gross and mysterious on there and just replace those words, I don't think that mm-hmm. specifically cream corn was the thing that mattered. I think that um, the idea of distaste and um, just kind of bringing attention to it in this scene uh, was the more important part. Um if she said nothing about sure. it, like nothing about the cream corn and our focus was not on the cream corn, um, maybe it might have been a little bit off putting. Uh, but I think that putting so much attention to it was only to make this scene all the more strange. If only it had been pudding and said it was corn. Uh, have you ever had cream corn, Professor? I don't think the kid could hold uh, pudding as firmly. So um, <laughs> I think that cream corn was a good option so that it could be all inside of his hand and it didn't get over his fancy suit. I think cream corn would also be pretty hard to hold. Have you ever had cream corn, by the way, Professor? Uh, no, uh, I just assumed that corn came whole and, or in pieces. I didn't realize that we also had an option for um, just creamy. I didn't think creamy was an option for corn. I think it's disgusting. I can't stand cream corn. <laughs> it's one of my least favorite foods I've ever tried. I, I think there's there's something about the texture and taste of it that just isn't right. Uh-huh. So for me, when it when, when they bring up cream corn, I, I understand why you wouldn't want cream <laughs> corn. Um, and I, I think it's even fun. What else is funny is that we get a line where she even says, like, they used to bring me hospital food. Imagine that, <laughs> which is so funny because how much Lynch kept heart. I wouldn't say Lynch, but last episode in general, which Lynch was in charge of, kept harping on the badness of the hospital food, you know, <laughs> so we get that reference again. <laughs> Did, was David Lynch in the hospital recently and like had a bad case of hospital food and just wrote it into several episodes? I don't think it even has to be recently. I think he's just haunted by hospital food in general. If, even if it was like, say, five years ago and the hospital food was that bad. I mean, I think that that's at least worth mentioning if you're in a hospital then. So after we get the cream corn hospital food situation, uh, Mrs. Tremond kind of mysteriously when she's asked by Donna who's there, you know, for Meals on Wheels, Donna asks her, did you know Laura very well? And Mrs. Tremont, like, takes, like, five years to, like, look away and go, no. And then, uh, you know, kind of just comment, you know, she's dead. She didn't really know her very well. But she says that Donna should go talk to Harold. Yeah, she seemed very uncomfortable with it. Right, and then she directed Donna to go instead talk to this guy named Harold Smith, who was next door. Uh, She said that he was Laura's friend. 
Um, and, it, you know, it's kind of amazing. We find them in a character who didn't know Laura very well. If we take her for her word, someone who didn't know Laura. Um, and then the grandson, after hearing about the whole Harold Smith comment, the grandson says in French, uh, j'ai un ame solitaire, which translates to I am a lonely soul. Uh, followed by Mrs. Tremond explaining that Mr. Smith, Harold Smith, does not leave his house. So the I am a lonely soul comment you can interpret that to be about the boy, maybe, maybe Mrs. Tremond herself, maybe Donna, but most likely probably Harold Smith. Possibly. It's weird that like the uh, pronoun is the I um, or the noun is the I um, when addressing it, unless it's like quoting a piece of literature or a poem or something like that, um, when the boy himself says it but yeah no it's definitely curious mm -hmm. it's definitely suspect uh thank you because for the subtitles it just said speaks in french and so in my notes i said <laughs> damn it uh now i have to learn french uh but no i'm thankful that you got the translation yeah, and i can't pronounce they can't assume that my pronunciation was perfect either but that that's a, definitely the phrase that okay. was used and then uh donna leaves to go talk to mr harold smith because Donna's not there, of course, doing Meals and Wheels to help people. She's there to investigate. Yes. Serious business. <clears throat> Donna's on a mission. She's not wearing her glasses, though, so I don't know how much of a bad girl she is. Anyway, so she leaves, and then uh, you get the grandson who, you know, in case you thought he was too in touch with the Dharma, he says she seemed like a nice girl. And I don't know, that's the first wrong thing he said so far. <laughs> like, I agree with the Tremons, cream corn is nasty, okay. and magic's cool. I'm with them on that, okay? But when you start saying Donna's a nice girl, I don't know. He lost. OK, me a bit why there. is Donna not a nice person? So far, we haven't really gotten enough from her to really get many v bad vibes. I mean, the worst you can really say is that she started dating Laura's ex-boyfriend uh, right after her death. But at the same time, that that, that just comes to a means of personal preference and uh, the other uh, flightiness of the young heart. So you're you, I'll just say this. You were someone who did not like how Bobby kept going outside of the law with Shelly to try to handle their issues with Leo Johnson to the point where Bobby was like breaking and entering and like falsifying evidence and getting in the middle of things, correct? Yes. I think you could draw an extension to what James, Donna and Maddie have done with their interactions with Jacoby near the end of season one in particular. Um, the moment Maddie even suggested that maybe what they're doing is a bad idea, it, it hurts people, they shouldn't be trying to do what they're doing, Donna just basically shuts her up and says, you can't think like that. It'll drive you crazy. <laughs> so Donna's just like shoving away any possible guilt that their actions could hurt other people as they are essentially messing with the investigation all their own way, too. Now, two things with that. One, uh, we thought that, uh, or at the very least, uh, I believe I remember you bringing up that this may be a Laura Palmer-based mask that she tries to wear in order to um, try to either hype herself up or be closer to uh, Laura to maybe mm -hmm. in turn be closer to James. Um mm -hmm. So whether or not that is her true intention or her true mindset is to be seen. Secondly, nice is a subjective term. Maybe uh, this little Tremon boy really likes those sort of aspects and sees positivity in the actions <laughs> of nearly getting a psychiatrist killed. So I, I like the idea that the other version of it is that Donna put on her glasses before she left. And then the the grandson, Pierre, said, Donna, she seems like a bad girl. <laughs> <laughs> like then it plays like the wolf whistle in the background and that would have been a better scene. 
It's like, for example, like it's like an on and off button with those uh, sunglasses. She's just a bad girl when they're on. She's a good girl when they're off. So it's, yeah. it's a nice little Clark Kent thing in Twin Peaks. What is, what's the saying? Uh, it's like a saint in the streets and a freak in the sheets. Is that what they say? So is this like a saint in the grand? I, I'm sorry, but I don't want to consider Donna in any sheets. Uh, no, I was going to take I was going to take a joke from that is that she's a saint in the streets and a freak in Twin Peaks. OK, anyway, uh, the last I guess the last thing I have noticed that can kind of be a good tangential connection. We've got the spirituality of the Dharma of Cooper. Yes. We've got the stuff with Mrs. Tremont, the cream corn. Yes. I think then the natural follow up is Major Briggs, mm -hmm. who got that message from the log lady. He he seemed to actually kind of entertain uh, the log lady's ideas of the log, but he admitted he had never been introduced to the log before. Uh -huh. She corrects him saying that, the you know, she does not introduce the log, but she delivers the message. She says, deliver the message. Ask him if he understands. Uh, Briggs says, as a matter of fact, he does understand. And then we get later in the episode, um, we get Major Briggs uh, knocking on uh, Cooper's door at the hotel and talking to Cooper and revealing the message that uh, it appears the log lady would have instructed him to send. I do uh -huh. like how you can read this spiritually that like the log and the log lady really knew there was something to send or a pure coincidence, mm -hmm. like something as general as send the message. It, it could be a spiritual connection or it could be um, coincidence mm -hmm. that kind of allows you to have a little bit of wiggle room. Mm -hmm. It's not like she knew something that no one else could have known. Um, but Briggs uh, is talking to uh, Cooper. Uh, Major Briggs says he's not at liberty to reveal the true nature of his work. The secrecy pains him from time to time. He talks about how any bureaucracy that functions in secrecy inevitably lends itself to corruption. But these rules he've pledged uphold. He believes that the pledge is sacred. Cooper says he agrees, speaking as a man and a fellow employee of the federal government. And that's where Briggs reveals that among his many tasks is the maintenance of deep space monitors. Yeah. Which are aimed at galaxies beyond our own. Yep. So in case you're worried that Twin Peaks is only concerned with the forest nearby, it's also gone into space now. Mm -hmm. No, this uh, makes me all the more excited because Briggs actually has uh, reports from strange sounds that kind of echo through the echelons of the cosmos. Um, it just kind of brings back my mind to the sense of Cthulhu horrors and mythos, uh, creatures that can be mm -hmm. from far, far, far off places, but either making their distance or influences known from uh, places far, far, far beyond them. Uh, to that point that I'm really tempted to just break out my Cthulhu books and just kind of look for things that might parallel to Twin Peaks because, yeah, these are the fun, exciting, strange aspects that I absolutely adore uh, from media like that. So, yeah, um, mm -hmm. no, this is just makes Twin Peaks and the strangeness of it all all the more exciting for me. And Major Briggs is pretty excited, too, because he's been doing this for who knows how long and all the time it's just like random gibberish that he gets when he decodes it. It's all just space garbage. But then like randomly the, the like pretty much the the moment Cooper was shot right around that time, uh, rose and rose of yep. gibberish. And then all of a sudden the owls are not what they seem. And then I kind of like how later in the morning, as if like space or whatever entity sent that realized, oh, crap, we didn't say who to send the message to. It then repeats Cooper, 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 Cooper. It's like in case Cooper, you weren't Cooper. sure who the owl no, 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 message no, three is for. Times. 
Uh, I I detected uh, five. I wrote five. No, there were three. I will fight I put you Cooper, on that. Cooper, Cooper, Cooper. He said it three times, right but on the there screen was Cooper. was four was five. He said Cooper, Cooper, hmm. Cooper, but on the screen was five. Let's let's compromise and say four, okay. so both of us are wrong. We know okay. it's not four. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so therefore, <laughs> it still was enough times that I was like Cooper, 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 uh, all day, all night. And then I think it's interesting that as soon as we get the the owls are not what they seem, which, of course, is something the giant had mentioned as one of the truths he was going to tell. Uh, we get immediately after that Cooper in his sleep, seeing an owl image superimposed over Bob's face. So he, there was a pretty quick payoff, at least initially on more owl content. <laughs> yeah, not to mention uh, that's even the point where I kind of get really concerned for uh, our giant friend, because uh, like sometimes he'll appear at night and one of the first reactions he does is wave in front of Cooper's face. Sometimes uh, I assume that this is just checking his consciousness, if anything, but it might even be able to wave a sense of influence onto Cooper. But yeah, he stands over and he waves his hand. Jedi mind trick. Uh, then we see a scene in which uh, Ronette is uh, just pulse. Uh, there's a pulsing uh, sensation towards Ronette. Uh, like there's flashes uh showing her the owls uh just are not what they seem as uh it kind of flashes bob's face with that little owl context and then a blurry person inside the background which may be bob uh there's then this weird grayscale pulse uh showing off cooper uh the owls are not what they seem uh there's the giant and briggs um then uh, Mama Palmer is running down the stairs and then Bob comes into focus. Uh, we also had another scene earlier, which I'm sure we'll get more into uh, Bob uh, influencing another person or at least making himself known. So uh, mm -hmm. what connection the friendly giant has to Bob and uh, whether or not this is going to make him more or less friendly or if we are to assume that there are just aspects to Crazy Bob or the giant that are very obscured at the moment. It's it, it's scary, to say the least. Um. <laughs> I think it's interesting what this show seems to want the audience to do, because um, we had in the season premiere for season two that scene where the one arm man, Philip Gerard, is talking to Lucy. It basically implies hey, he's going to wait for Truman to show up to talk about shoes and he kind of looks like suspicious when he's like just standing there smiling weirdly toward yeah. the camera. And we never get a follow up on what happened there. We also got, I believe it was this episode, the call Lucy got where someone wouldn't say who was calling. Yep. And demanded to speak to Truman. And what's crazy then is that we're not getting a follow up yet. Right. So the things you would think we're going to get a follow up, we're not getting a follow up. But the things you don't think we're going to get a follow up to, we do. We assume that the cryptic, you know, owls are not what they seem thing. Maybe that'll get revealed later. But no, right away we get we get owls on Bob's face, which I wouldn't say explains anything. But it is giving us something of an immediate uh, impulse of where this is going. We're still not really sure where the one armed man, Philip Gerard, is. And he's someone who had previously associated mm -hmm. with Bob. So obviously keep yes. our eyes out for him. Um who knows um, uh, who is calling the precinct? Uh, I like to think that it is an owl uh, in which somehow Lucy is able to translate. Yes. <laughs> who? Yes. Who? No, no. Uh, I need your name, yeah, Lucy sir. I need Lucy your name, sir, if you want to talk to Truman. <laughs> who? Who? Uh, no, I mean you. You're the one I need the name of. I'm I'm Lucy. I work at the sheriff's station. Who are you? Who? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> Where did you want to go from here, Professor? I think we've addressed a lot of the spiritual and weird factors. Uh, we do get more of Bob. Did you want to jump to more of Bob's sightings throughout the episode or? Uh, yeah, let's, let's take a step back from Bob the Owl uh, and kind of talk between uh, James, Maddie and Donna uh, for their fun scene okay. this episode. Uh, James, Maddie and Donna. <laughs> I love this scene. I, I love it and I hate it. And it's that mix of emotions that makes it so James is not the worst for me. He's, he's low, but he's not the worst because. OK, so this song was written by David Lynch. This just you song. It was written by David Lynch and it oh. is their voices. So in case you were concerned, like that is James, the actor for James. And it is uh, the actor for Maddie and the actress for Donna. Th those three. They are doing the voices of the song. So that is what James sings like. Yeah, honestly, when it comes down to it, like I thought that maybe there was like a poor dubbing moment just because of I didn't really get as much of the intensity of what they were singing as they were in front of the microphone uh, while they were acting. So, uh, no, that's an interesting factoid right there. But yeah, James, uh, Maddie and Donna are having a fun singing <laughs> moment where they are. I guess just singing to relax. Uh, maybe they want to start. I mean, a all band. teenagers do this at some point. Do they? When whenever whenever teenagers find themselves in a love triangle situation, you have to do a singing situation to show your dominance. Mm -hmm. OK, it's it's how one teenager asserts her dominance over the other teenager and shows that, yes, I am the worthy one, <laughs> which I did love. The Choose framing. me. Give me the rose, bachelor, <laughs> which I did love the framing in this. Uh, we see that uh, Donna is obsessively looking at James like her eye contact is barely yeah. breaking from him. Uh, and Maddie, for most of the scene, uh, she has her eyes closed away. And James is switching between these two modes. His eyes are closed. He looks at the girls. His eyes are closed, looks at the girls mm -hmm. until close to the very end where um, we have Maddie's attention uh, pushed towards James and both James and Maddie lock eyes. Uh, I again uh, and Donna sees this. <laughs> like the song choice, especially with just you. Uh, I don't know the purpose of making the song, but it's only going to cause complications. Hey, you can be singular or plural. You can be singular or plural. Is it just you singular or just you plural? That <laughs> you, matters. You know, usually whenever it's a just uh, preceded with the you, usually you'd consider it's the one person or elsewise it makes it a little bit less special when it's just you all. <laughs> you know that song, I Think We're Alone Now? I guess there's someone else with us, too. That's the, that's the lyric, right? Um, I guess. Yeah, no, I know no, what you're saying. Like, I guess we're all alone. Uh, it must just take place in like literally like a party or a grocery store in which yep, we're all alone together. Everyone here. <laughs> if you think about it that yeah. way. <laughs> so so Donna picks up on the vibes of what's going on and she she runs away, but not very far, like just to like the next room in the hallway or whatever. And then James is like, what's wrong? Nothing. And then she just immediately starts like making out yeah, with him. She's uh, trying. I'm trembling, James. You made me. <laughs> yeah, she's got this dependency that's making me more and more concerned. Not oh. only for A, that's one of the lesser uh, parts of like the first season that I hope we don't fall back into. Uh, but there's also the second point that, yeah, she's probably going to make an special effort on James's part, which is just straight up not healthy. Now, will this probably make things a little bit more intriguing on this love triangle aspect? Maybe, but it doesn't make me less concerned that 
No, Donna, don't do this. This is a bad idea. Sitting down and singing the song Just You was a bad idea. This whole relationship thing is kind of a bad idea. Let's kind of like take a step back and just figure out where we're at. And again, I don't know what the intentions, if this was meant to be taken seriously, what audience this was for. I just view it through the lens of like, this is some heightened, really stupid, almost parody of Dawson's Creek. Like, I laugh at it. Mm hmm. I find it to be very funny. So I think the Donna James stuff is at its best when it's so stupid and bad that I can laugh at it. And the way Donna reacts after leaving is so priceless for me that I'm like, you know what? It's funny. I don't think it's good, but it's funny. Khalil, I'm glad that you're really open with your inner Rosenfield with us. Um, it, I really do appreciate I your laugh at their there. suffering. I mean, if they're going to suffer, I think it's only charitable that I laugh at the suffering. You know, at least someone's happy about it. <laughs> uh, you know, yes, they're going to suffer anyway. I might as well get a laugh out of it. Uh -huh. uh, while the, while Donna's going to take that call from Harold Smith, we still haven't seen or heard Harold, but she's talking to him, making plans. Uh, Maddie's left alone in the living room, the awkward third wheel all of a sudden. And yes. uh, she's just chilling, you know, looking at the couch, yes. having a good old time. Mm -hmm. Nothing happens at all. And then James yeah. and Donna visit her and it's end. That's it. That's all that happened. <laughs> No, no, no. Uh, we, we, we get to see, uh, say it with me now, Crazy Bob. Crazy Bob looks killer around Bob. the corner slowly. Uh, killer Bob? I like calling him Crazy Bob. I know you do. I don't know where you got that from because I don't think the show's ever called him Crazy Bob. <laughs> That's fine. I can call him Crazy Bob. That's my title. I, I mean, he, I think that. he I think he's sane. He seems perfectly adjusted. Like to we me. don't have uh, guarantees that he is the killer. We just saw flashes with Ronette uh, that there well, was a he very literally bad said situation. I will kill again. Yeah, but at the same time, like a killer, you, you'd consider like there's going to be more than like one death. So if he is to kill no, again, uh, yeah, then a killer he becomes is someone a killer. who's killed someone. Eh, I don't know. Maybe just like the one kill might have just been like, I don't know, uh, just an incident in which <laughs> <laughs> like he. Uh, Wait, so someone's not a killer or a murderer if they've only killed one person. I feel like we need to get a body count at the very least to at least um, organize them. A body count killers. of one is still a killing. <laughs> It's a killee, not a killer. Uh, no, this is dumb now. What? No, killee would be the person who's killed. The killer is the one who does the killing. Bob has claimed to have killed and will kill again. That would make him, in turn, a killer. But he might be sane. Forgive me, Khalil. I ended up getting distracted because for some reason there's just rearing outside. My windows are completely closed, yet it comes out clear as day for these guys skirting by out the window. Going, so that sucks. I, I, I heard it. I, I, I think it's uh, yeah, it was notable. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, Maddie sees Bob climb over the couch, mm -hmm. having a good one. And uh, that freaks her out because the Palmers are all well adjusted people who are having uh, no mental baggage to have to overcome. Yeah. Um, uh, honestly, I was really hoping that like Crazy Bob made himself completely known. Like it was actually Bob inside of the house uh, just crawls up to uh, good old Mandy. She screams and they run over and just get close. And we just literally just see this really like uh, lanky individual just leaning over on the table, just like weirdly staring. <laughs> he just walked into the house and he's just hunched. <laughs> but no, he disappears. I can't really say too much about this because we don't have enough context on Bob on Maddie on everything. We know the Palmers have had problems with Bob, but we don't we don't have enough to go on at this point. We don't have enough to really go on at this point to say a lot. I will say I just I really enjoy this moment. I really enjoy the 
contrast of emotions from just you. Whether you take the just you moment as like a love triangle serious or you laugh at it, either way, it's juxtaposed by the menace of Bob climbing the couch. I think that the visual and auditory cues of that switch are very good. And I like that contrast. I think it's very jolting. It's just you, Bob. And I love the way Bob climbs over that couch. I think that's more effective. Could you imagine that scene where instead of climbing over, he walks around the couch (laughs) like it wouldn't be nearly as good. (laughs) So I think climbing the couch was perfect. Yeah, the uh, actor for Bob has a nice intensity to him, to say the least. And it is revealed that Leland actually has seen Bob Um, earlier in the episode. uh, We actually get a little bit of a drawing Mm -hmm. that uh, Runette does clarify. Um, that at least she reacts to the image and freaks out about the train car. And now there's posters all over um, with, um, well, I suppose only in a few select spots from what we've seen, but I assume all over uh, saying, have you seen this man showing off Bob? Which, by the way, uh, Andy, oh, oh, interesting time just taping things up, uh, Andy. So so I can only assume from how much problems he had with that, uh, the poster's only in like three places. But yeah, going off on, uh, you know what? The real, the really embarrassing thing for Andy is that while he was getting uh, tape caught on him, he was also caught on tape because we, the viewers, could see it. And That's the unfortunate thing, isn't it? Anyway, we do. So yeah, they they post this picture of Bob, and I got to be honest with you, I, I I I won't belabor this too long, but I think it's not a great choice that. Ronette, who's been in like a coma for a week, basically, she wakes up and immediately they start showing her pictures that could like trigger her anxiety. Mm-hmm. She, we were just told she's in a state of shock. So their solution, uh, let's just show her pictures of people that might have assaulted her. Yeah. And I feel like that's really, really inappropriate to do in the state that Ronette's in. I don't think that that's an OK way to go about this. Uh, I understand that Cooper has his need to solve the case, but you could give the girl a few days. You got to trust the friendly giant man. Uh, Not to mention, we did hear some fun voice distortion. So maybe a little bit of Bob influence still rests inside her. Ooh. Uh, Also, the picture of Leo they showed her was terrible. That did not look like Leo. (laughs) Yeah, I actually was questioning whether or not it was Leo because it looked more like the friendly giant than it did (laughs) Leo. It looks more like Andy than Leo, uh, almost like it doesn't look like Leo. So it's like, no, I don't think that's the man. But who could it be? Maybe uh, she, that disgruntled sigh was not a sense of like uh, just being uncomfortable with the image, but it was just honestly like, who is this man? I do not know this man. Uh, so we know that from Ronette's reaction, though, that she has seen the vision of Bob. Probably, you know, at least the same way that the Palmers seem to have all seen it. And then we flash forward. There's a scene with Ben and Jerry that I really like and probably we'll talk about some other time here. But after Ben and Jerry have a little bit of a fun time uh, with their burning and the Norwegians, Leland comes in and is just like he notices the picture of Bob on the table. He just zooms in on it, basically starts ignoring Ben, who's kind of his employer. And he just picks up the sheet of paper. I know him. My grandfather's summer house on Pearl Lakes. He lived right next door. I was just a little boy, but I know him. Um, And he leaves to go talk to the sheriff ASAP, which, you know, we haven't got to that scene yet. (laughs) Yeah. Timelines are weird um, and made me question whether or not that was Leland uh, who called initially. But why he would not reveal his name would be weird. Yeah. And then even after speaking of like weird timelines, when uh, when when he leaves, Ben says to Jerry, you know, Jerry, please kill Leland. And Jerry, you know, says, is this real Ben or some strange and twisted dream? So. 
Who knows how time and reality is operating if Jerry's realizing it's a dream. But uh, with the comment that Bob was someone he saw when he was just a boy, but it was very clear. It's a question of how long Bob Mm -hmm. has been present, or maybe there actually is, again, weird connection with these cosmic entities. Um, Who knows what happened to Laura Palmer? Like, sure, we got a body that was inside of a body bag. But with these ideas of a double life and already weird things happening, like teleporting cream corn, I can't necessarily say it's out of the ballpark that, um, say, for example, Laura Palmer, like considering these two lives, one ended up getting off and possibly transcended um and we see her in the this weird future dream with cooper or someone who looks absolutely like her uh meanwhile the other half um mm-hmm. either f- fell off um and you know down the river or his cousin maddie um it's it's interesting uh to consider um whether or not like there was a bob beforehand or if bob was always the strange entity so i hope we get to discover more with leland's testimony well what's also curious then is that if this is someone leland someone who's a boy that means this guy hasn't aged right like this this bob figure that all the Palmers we know of have seen, right? As far as we're aware of Sarah Palmer, uh, Leland now, Maddie, I I don't know if we have any confirmation. Do we have any confirmation that Laura Palmer has seen Bob? That's what I was getting at before. Um, uh, Laura Palmer seeing Bob, like literally we get, we heard that one thing of like, do you want to see Bob? Do you want to see Bob? Uh, when she was speaking to James. So Bob was referenced by name. Oh, okay. Not yes. to mention, so she, we did get that. My, my apologies. I'm forgetting what's Not to said. mention uh, the thing that I just addressed, uh, that future vision. Laura Palmer looks the same age while Cooper looks much more aged. If there was a sense of transcending mm-hmm. this mortal coil, uh, through some sort of strange act. Um, who knows what happened between Laura Palmer and Bob? And if Bob did exist beforehand or afterwards, um, if he was like tangible or if he was still in the strange uh, fever dream like way in Leland's past, I think I can maybe put more connections together when we get more of Leland's testimony. But for now, all we know is right. that hopefully is in the next episode, right? Yeah, <laughs> but who knows? Maybe Leland will uh, take three episodes getting to Truman again. Time works weird uh, in Twin Peaks, and I don't necessarily trust uh, Leland to be able to walk down uh, most hallways without freaking out, uh, let alone get to the police office. <laughs> office uh so <laughs> yeah um i think we've covered most of the uh i wouldn't say important i don't mean to make it seem like the other stuff isn't important but all the stuff that seems to relate to bob laura um the investigation those aspects yes um so just kind of jumping to the smaller things and we already talked about ben and jerry so i'd like to just wrap that up while we're there um Go before leland comes in and sees the picture uh we have um ben and jerry together talking about the two different ledgers the one that was the actual ledger and then the one that they'd been falsifying one of them shows the mill slowly losing money and actual. one of them shows the mill was doing really really good and the fake Yep, uh, it right. was faked in order to show that it was progressively um, gaining uh, profits just so that... Um, Make it seem like it was not going to go down. Because the idea was that if they weren't going to literally burn the mill, they would get rid of the mill by making it go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And now they have to decide between if it is seems like this land is very profitable, they could get more money 
off of the yes. land. Meanwhile, uh, if they end up keeping the less profitable point, it will at least be uh, foolproof against scrutiny or uh, presumed to be. So yeah, they're now caught in between this point on whether or not they should burn one of the ledgers. Uh, not the cheese pig. So they instead decide to burn right. marshmallows instead while they decide. So it, it was a cute scene. Yeah, and Jerry, when he realizes, when Jerry realizes that he, uh, they haven't decided, I like his way of wording things, you know, depending upon how one looks at the situation, it appears they both have merit. It looks like we are 100% certain we are not sure. I, I like Jerry's way of... <laughs> Wording things? Saying nothing. It's hard that to tell sometimes if Jerry, how, how would, yeah, I, I don't know with Jerry sometimes. He is the bubble wrap of the packaging. What his intentions are with the words he says. Like, is he, is he making a joke? Is he processing this out loud? I just really <laughs> like the flow of it. I really like the feel of it. I just don't know when Jerry says those things, what is he <laughs> trying to do? I don't know. Uh, Jerry's hard Absolutely. for me to pinpoint. Um, but Ben, he's a more simple guy. He's a man of culture. He brings out the marshmallows. Jerry shouts, Ben, where are those hickory sticks? Mm -hmm. And then you fade out to black for that part. Um, I love I love the fact that in this episode. We take a moment for humor. Yeah, not with those two. I think it's very important that Ben and Ben and Jerry, who are pretty despicable people by all accounts of Twin Peaks, um, they get a moment of humor. That they're seen to be connecting as brothers, going to roast some marshmallows over the fire. I mm -hmm. like that idea a lot. Um, and I think you need that. You need that balance sometimes that that Ben and Jerry at the end of the day are people, not only people, but brothers. There is a genuine bond between these two yes. uh, and a genuine kinship that uh, I definitely look forward to. Ben and Jerry is definitely a good combination, not only in ice cream, but as brothers. So. Uh, yeah. And I don't know if, you know, if Ben has any other associates, he wouldn't backstab because we saw the way he handled Catherine. We don't, I mean, I assume he could do the same thing to Josie if the cards were to turn. He seems to have a love-hate relationship with people like Leo and Hank. And, and then you have, uh, Leland. When Leland leaves, he says, kill him, you know? And Leland's been mostly a pain ever since the Laura Palmer death. Ben's been kind of against everyone, it almost seems. Then you see the way that Jerry responds to Blackie. We get the idea that Ben and Jerry may only have each other. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, like it doesn't seem like they trust anyone more than each other. Mm -hmm. um, and then at that point, we, we get a fade to black. Later on, we see them again. We uh, Ben learns that Jerry from Jerry that uh, Catherine never signed the insurance, which was a scene we saw way back in season one because Catherine noticed irregularities that Josie would get a bunch of money if she died. Uh, they uh, they call the Icelandics to check on the status of Ghostwood. I like the way. Uh, Ben words it. Let's get those pickled ice men <laughs> on the blower. Um, yes. And that's where we get uh, uh, Leland scene. I just want to take a quick second, though, and note something kind of as a side tangent. Uh, I was looking into um, some stuff on the Twin Peaks wiki. And uh, interestingly enough, it's not credited exactly who the voice is on the phone talking when when the, when the Icelandic's on the phone. It's credited as the same character who previously was making the deal with Ben but we're not sure if it's the same actual actor. Like, it might be a different Icelandic guy, <laughs> which led me to a page in the Twin Peaks wiki called Unknown Performers, mm -hmm. a list of every character we don't know who they are, who the actor mm -hmm. is. And just some highlights so far, the uh, character known as Boogie Dancing High Schooler, uh, I refer to as Spinning Locker Man, um, from the pilot, we do not have a known actor. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim, the morgue attendant, who in the scene 
in the pilot, uh, Cooper asked him a question and the actor in real life thought he was asking his name. So he said, Jim, but that was not at all what was being asked. So Jim became a character only because he said his own real name. We don't know his real last name, though, so it's still an unknown actor. Uh-huh. Um, there's a character from episode five called No Georgia Peach. <laughs> I guess someone was referred to as being No, jo- no Georgia Peach. So they just kind of went with that. Fantastic. And then I saw episode six. It says Lawrence. And I'm like, who's Lawrence from episode six? And do you know who Lawrence is from episode six? Who? Love Carl. There is a Twin Peaks wiki uh, article for Lawrence, the worker at the casino. It has a picture of him and everything. Well, regardless, Lawrence, well, still regardless of uh, whether it was Lawrence or Love Carl, uh, it, they will still hold a special place in our heart as Love Carl. I'm just very disappointed that this actor who put such an amazing performance out there hasn't ever been credited. <laughs> After, I mean, he really made that episode. And I think just to, you know, ignore him like that is just blatantly unprofessional. Ah, them's the breaks. That's business, kid. <laughs> I hope listeners understand we, we are making a jest. <laughs> and uh, speaking of Ben, we also get a little fun note with Audrey. Audrey ends up investigating further uh, inside of One-Eyed Jacks. Uh, she ends up coming across a mm-hmm. rather familiar character whose name will never stick into my head um, where she ends up interrogating him a little bit. Emery? Emery, thank you. Yep, Emery Battis. A uh, great name, we'll never remember it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Can we just appreciate for a moment his kink? Like, we're not here to shame anyone, right? If you have the same sexual preferences as Emery Battis, uh, I hope you're a better person than him. Um, but his particular kink is toenail polish, bound feet and arms, sleeping mask, blindfold, woman in cowgirl outfit with red hair vacuuming to his left side, and he's in silk PJs. Oh, not to mention the ice bucket. What was it called again? Yeah, there was an ice bucket, because when when, he, when Audrey shows up, he's like, Frosty? My little snowman. I feel a cold front moving in. <laughs> again, not laughing at him. I'm laughing with him. I, I'm happy for him, you know? Glad he's... His I'm just met. genuinely curious what was going to happen with Mr. Frosty. Uh, but yes, he has a very specific. Uh, lo- I, do I call it lust? Uh, he has this very specific interest. I, I just I've just said kink, uh, whatever you want to call it. His, he's got it's a variety of like fetishes overlapped with each other. Uh, and I don't know which I think I think the vacuuming is the one that gets me the most. Mm-hmm. But I don't know because there's so many different ingredients in this whole thing. One on their own wouldn't be so weird, but altogether, it's very specific. Do you think that the people who were ranked the highest amongst the little black book that he held were dependent on how well they could vacuum uh, the nearby floors inside the department store or something? Um, (laughs) I I like the idea that, yeah, Ben has to test out the new girls in the bedroom and Emery Battis has to test out the new girls by doing some cleaning. (laughs) Like like when they're when they're doing their cleaning work around the place, he's over there listening in and seeing which one deserved the promotion. But but yes, uh, we actually get a nice (laughs) little fun moment uh, with her in which she actually does kind of compare a nice little situation that uh, she's in with a little Red Riding Hood uh, mentioning. Yeah, which we mentioned in the last podcast. Wrong episode. Like, I somehow just had an inkling. Yeah. uh, The cosmic powers that be. You tapped into the Dharma. (laughs) The great cosmic powers that be just told me that, uh, yes, Little Red Riding Hood was surely to come. So. (laughs) 
I'm very entertained that immediately the next episode, uh, I was gratified with Little Red Riding Hood. But yeah, she chokes him out, gets some information that, yes, Ben basically owns everything. Uh, and he has things settled in one-eyed jacks. Um... <laughs> Stuff we already pretty much either knew or could assume. I don't think we we as viewers learned anything. No, new but in it's that. important that she. But Audrey got yeah, confirmation. Audrey gets confirmation to that with the information that she has. If she delivers this to Cooper, who knows what sort of avenues Cooper can come across during this. Unfortunately, when she tries to call Cooper, uh, Blackie kind of interrupts the call. And we have no clue what's happened to Audrey at this moment. Uh, but she was in tears last time we saw her. I think it's also interesting before we yeah, even even before that moment where we get to the ending with the episode, um, Audrey's kind of snotty remark of I'm Audrey Horn and I get what I want. I think it's a kind of a good definitive line for her character. And also one thing I guess I could say we I don't know if we mm. I guess it's not something we really knew. It's something we just kind of assumed. But that Laura had gone through the perfume counter. We find out that uh, she had been thrown out because she was on drugs while there. And when Audrey was asking questions, uh, Emery Battis said that her father makes it his business to entertain all the girls. So that would imply that Laura was one of those girls. Yep. Um, uh, the biggest uh, Im- the biggest, most interesting implication, too, was that she was just there for uh, one weekend from what Battis mm-hmm. says uh, and that uh, she was using drugs and then they tossed her out, uh, especially considering Blackie and uh, how we know she's been handling drugs um, with uh, good old Jerry providing uh, maybe Ben as well, that. Yeah. Um, w- w- at, to what point uh, was the drug use a problem, per se? Um, well, and what's also interesting, one other note I was going to get to and then you jumped in. But um, <laughs> the the moment with Emery Battis where he also adds that Laura always got her way, understand, just like you. So Audrey's made claims throughout the season one that she knew Laura Palmer better than anyone, even though they weren't particularly close and weren't really friends. Uh, Emery Battis knows enough about both of them to link them in that way to say that Laura was someone who always got what she wanted. She always got her way, which is interesting to thing to say about someone who seems to be the, you know, seems to be dead did, by most people's accounts. Then did she <laughs> want to get kicked out of the one eyed jacks? That's that's curious. That's an idea. Maybe she did, because even Jacoby even speculated that she only died on her own terms, that Laura had reached a point of accepting her own death. Mm -hmm. That was what Jacoby had said previously. Mm -hmm. So I think that's just an interesting comparison between Audrey and uh, Laura. And like you were adding uh, at the end of the episode, um, Audrey calls Cooper. She's in trouble. Emery Battis and Blackie uh, tell her that, you know, you don't know what trouble is, not by a long shot. Uh, ending with that sort of cliffhanger for Audrey. Yep, and we still have Audrey's note under the bed because Cooper will never look under there. Um, there's also the... No. The, I mean, to be fair, how often do you look under your bed? All the time. All the, I lose stuff all the time. On that the is hour. the go-to spot. Um, oh. But yeah, uh, Cooper actually does, uh, in fact, even just kind of almost reminisce on Audrey. He's kind of being absent minded on the usual things he keeps his focus on and instead just kind of recalls her smile. And when she does call, he just demands that she comes back home. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. He notes that hearing about her disappearance has shaken him in ways that he would not have expected. Mm -hmm. 
And um, especially with the dialogue beforehand, it makes me all the more curious on whether or not he was talking about Audrey while lying on the floor bleeding out. So, hmm. Interesting. Mm hmm. Uh, three smaller things and then I got all my notes wrapped up. Uh, Andy and Lucy, we talked about a bit earlier with the tape joke, but uh, I like that the world's largest fly like loudest, not largest. The world's loudest fly was obviously bothering Lucy um, when she is waiting for Andy. Andy comes in with the tape on his yeah, forehead. It seems that and uh, then, uh, they were trying to compare the situation of him just like pacing back and forth in front of it with the buzzing yes. of the fly. He's just buzzing around. Just both are pests yeah. in their own way. <laughs> and uh, Andy says that uh, the Tacoma Sperm Bank was looking for donors. Naturally, I applied. It's my civic duty and I like whales. I think that's one of the very rare actual like jokes like in the show. Like that's actually I just like a joke, a right? Joke, like though. the idea of like, I don't think Andy means it as a joke, but I'm saying the writers do like it's funny, not because it's weird. It's funny because I believe that's what they call a joke. <laughs> Like sperm bank, sperm whales. I think that's just a joke. <laughs> and I'm kind of impressed because most of the humor in this show does not come through Ground that breaking. The humor comes in through overacting, underacting or like, you know, weird Emery Battis vacuum scenes. No, no, I, this was actually a normal joke. Uh, I'd say Rosenfeld makes uh, jokes quite often. Uh, they're a bit different. They're mean spirited. They're they're insult. Jokes. Look, I'm not looking for the spirit that. of jokes. I'm just looking for jokes in general. All right. Fair. You can move the you can anyway, move the cones uh, all you want, but they're still jokes. Sure. Anyway, after we get the joke, uh, Andy says his results that he's sterile, which he thought related to taking a bath. But then it was explained to him what that means. And he's wondering how Lucy got pregnant. She does not answer. Uh, Andy just walks off after, you know, she closes the door. Um, any thoughts? That's curious because <laughs> Twin Peaks is weird. The Immaculate Conception. It's the Jesus. I don't know. I do know. It's very curious. I have to say um, Twin Peaks already is very Twin Peaks is already very strange for Obviously. What yep. controversial hot take here, yep, yep. Professor? So uh, my mind went into uh, three different scenarios. One was that um, Lucy may have been involved elsewhere, um, and that might be a... Involved yeah. elsewhere? I like your euphemism there, Professor. Listen, I don't know uh, how Andy's and Lucy's relationship were beforehand. Uh, I don't know if they were actively dating or if they were just more so openly dating. Uh, I don't know if there was just uh, no communication on what's official or not. I don't know if they were dating. Um, all I know is that they had cute nicknames for each other and they're very upset with one another at this time. So mm -hmm. uh, I don't know where the boundaries right. were set. Um, with that, so this could be I'm I'm almost half expecting a Jesus situation where there is just a lacking of a father. It was just Twin Peaks birthing. That's what Lucy. I was joking on earlier. Um, yes. <laughs> so uh, yeah. who knows what sort of baby we're going to get? Uh, I'm really hoping that it's just like a uh, like a miniature version of Crazy Bob. Uh, Crazy Bob is reborn into this world so he may kill again. Uh, well, I like the idea that they just take Crazy Bob and like use 1990s visual effects to downsize him. <laughs> but it's the same yes. actor, like just in baby oh, size. That, that's adorable. That is absolutely adorable. Uh, um, it's something. 
It's or thirdly, um, it, this may very well be Andy's child, and somehow he just became less sterile uh, by one means or another. I'm sure that this is already a fun and confusing time for Lucy, uh, as well as Andy. Uh, I can see a bit more onto uh, where the frustrations may lie and why he walked out. It doesn't necessarily mean I still agree with his sentiment. Again, someone is showing their sense of vulnerability to you, and it seems that primarily he's either uh, walked away during that sense of vulnerability or has kind of uh, taken a little bit of an offensive towards that. I'm glad he communicated that sense of sterility, uh, but this is still a larger conversation. I think both of them need to sit down with that. Um, yeah, um, I uh, between door number one, two or three, I'm really hoping for number two, though. Uh, I want a mysterious Twin okay, Peaks, baby. Valid. Um, speaking of love, Leo Johnson update. Uh, we found out that Leo Johnson uh, lost a lot of blood. He is oxygen deprivation. Dr. Hayward is unsure if there might be some paralysis. He's not in pain, but beyond that, Doc Hayward says it's hard to say. Uh, Shelly does seem to get emotional looking at Leo's current state, but it's unclear if she's sad about, you know, hey, poor Leo, I loved him. I was married to him at one point. Or she's sad he's not dead. Either way, she's sad. Uh, we get this dramatic zoom in on Leo's reflection with his partly closed eyelids. Um, later on, yep, staring at himself. Right. Later on, we get a scene with Bob. With I put Ben in my notes. It was certainly not Ben and Shelley in the car together. That was Bob. <laughs> ben, oh ben was oh my. cooking marshmallows ben at that time. Putting I think. his thumb in that soup. Definitely. To be, to be fair, the timelines here I actually don't know when anything takes place. So maybe Ben found a time <laughs> away from the Icelandics and the marshmallows. Uh, so Bobby and Shelley were in the car Bobby. together, and. Uh, I thought it was really funny that actual Twin Peaks music is playing on the radio station until Bobby has her change it. So it was actually like soundtrack was playing <laughs> to something worse to something also Twin Peaks, but just different. I wouldn't say worse. Um, I'd say worse. Oh, OK. Uh, and then uh, Bobby apparently made a call to the, like assume the hospital or, you know, insurance or whatever as pretending to be Leo's cousin uh, and then kind of poked around with questions. And Bobby's convinced that if they get Leo to stay with them, they can collect disability money off of it. Uh, and then they don't really even need to take care of him, like basically yeah. just collect money. And Bobby says we can stick him in the corner and hang donuts from his ears. Leo owes you, baby. And now you really can make him pay. It's all on Leo. I mean, yeah, but uh, he's kind of like pushing away from. Like in the sense of literal pay, it's like last episode we had a sense of a nice little Bobby growth. And then when I see sort of like this uh, working and conniving uh, from Bobby's end, it makes me all the more concerned. Now, now this just feels like it's going to be an obvious transition to Leo making a recovery during this and causing problems with Bobby and Shelly. I don't see like uh, we're going to end the series with like Bobby and Shelly having a great time getting $5,000 a month and Leo's just going to be sitting there. Um, what if that's what happens, though? Would you be OK with that? <laughs> I mean, in one perspective, yes, but in another perspective, like Bobby, why Bobby, Bobby, why? Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that not everyone changes dramatically and stays changed dramatically. Bobby's had great moments in the past episode before this of growth. But along with that growth, there's still growing pains. There's still a sense that Bobby hasn't completely been born again. 
uh, he still has that side of him that's opportunistic. No, whenever you kind of speak to people about changes in any sort of aspect, the ideas of relapse are almost mm-hmm. guaranteed. It's almost a human nature to have some form of relapse as you grow. Um, well, and Bobby even might take this the wrong way. He listened to his father say he's going to reach this point of stability. Maybe Bobby's thinking, hey, my dad's dream can come true. All I got to do is just collect disability checks off Leo, the, and then I'm going to be doing great. That might be a <laughs> case, uh, but for now... Uh, uh, yeah, but it's a means to an end. But it still doesn't make me any less concerned for Bobby's concerned actions. I'm still going to be worried about him. I'm going to be saying, Bobby, come on. Come on. Why, Bobby? You're just giving yourself problems, Bobby. Um, and Shelly's kind of passive. You know, the, no, she obviously she, doesn't want Leo around, but it doesn't take very long to convince her that Bobby might be uh, right for her. She's very, she might actually agree with him. She starts being skeptical and uh, she even says about Truman uh, wanting her to testify but she is swayed by Bobby whether or not this is in a very romantic sense or if the uh, sense of switching around was from the idea of making Leo literally pay. Um, it, it, it It's definitely going to be a fun time for Shelly and Bobby uh, working through this new living mm-hmm. arrangement that they have. Um, ooh, mm, mm, ooh, oof. I just think it's safe to con- have a working thesis right now that Shelly as a character seeks out very assertive male figures in her life. Yes, um, absolutely. Based on the way based on the similarities we can draw between Leo and Bobby, I assume Shelly's used to not making a lot of decisions on her own. Mm hmm. Um, last thing I had on my note here was Sheriff Truman and Hank. Uh, there's the scene where Hank is coming in to the sheriff's office. He's admiring the buck on the wall where it says the buck stopped here uh, under the bust of the, the, the deer's head. Hank compliments the buck. He's all giggles about the situation. And then, like usual, Hank will flip moods between kind of laughing, joking, you know, to like very deadly serious and kind of jumping between the two moods. He's got his domino, which is a 3-3 domino, not a 4-4 domino. So the actor Chris Mulkey, we mentioned in our... Uh, uh, retrospective look back episode that Chris Mulkey talked about a four, four domino. Yeah. Still haven't seen that one. Mm-hmm. Um, he has the domino in his hand and, uh, after Hank leaves, you know, Cooper senses the mood and Truman explains that he and Hank grew up together. Yep. And that Hank used to be a bookhouse boy. Yeah, that was back then. Hank was one of the best. So, I think that's something interesting. It kind of puts some context on why Sheriff Truman and Hank were so rigid with each other when we first saw them interact at the Double Diner a few episodes ago. Yeah, uh, honestly, uh, from what I was seeing uh, in that scene, it seemed he was first off very serious, but he tried to uh, play things off, just be as like joking and friendly as possible. Uh, but it seemed like Truman was not having it. It seemed like Cooper wasn't quite having it. And even Cooper just kind of recognized, uh, the sort of friendship that they did have in the past. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting dynamic that they now have to play. Uh, I'm again, really hoping for, uh, more Bookhouse Boys content in the future. Uh, but at the very least, we Mm -hmm. do have guarantees that this is the three, three domino. And in my mind, the twin peaks domino as they are like sliding up hills. Right. I think it, I think it works thematically. Um, as much as a domino choice can matter. All the dominoes, Um, the closest to a twin peaks domino would be the three, three. That is that is very true. 
Um, Professor, is there anything else from your viewing and your notes that you feel we should be bringing up in this podcast? Not that I can think of. It mainly uh, beyond my... Uh, Beyond the sense of the craziness that uh, Tibet may bring, I'm just intrigued enough for the things that I will not be able to describe and find absolutely strange if these senses of mystery do go full Cthulhu. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I, I suppose, yeah, excitement is the main emotion I just want to express towards the end here. Perfect. Uh, Professor, if I may, I uh, I just want to say thank you for, for doing this podcast with me. Um, I think whenever, you know, the listener is listening into this, uh, when we're recording this right now, we're just starting out in June of 2020. And these are some crazy times and I don't want to get too deep into that. But I think there's something really enjoyable about being able to, you know, take some time, enjoy a TV show and talk about it with a good friend. Absolutely. And I think that sometimes that's just as important as uh, any sort of big answer to the problems in the world. I think sometimes just having those moments of reprieve and collecting ourselves and just enjoying things uh, puts it all in perspective. Mm -hmm. So I hope that for listeners, they can get some enjoyment out of this. And if not listening to us, get some enjoyment out of having an excuse to watch Twin Peaks. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Professor, for, for allowing us to do that. Uh, I, and I'm thankful that you're letting me join you on your journey through the show. I'm glad you are enjoying it. I only allow um, you now, listeners, but I will break the spine if I have to <laughs> and <laughs> build oh, my own foundation. <laughs> this shall no longer be Twin Peaks, but the single peak shall rise. No, it's been a fun time, and I'm very thankful that we had a chance to explore more Twin Peaks. And I hope that uh, whatever crazy bits of analysis that we're able to bring to the table, it only makes uh, the viewing experience or the retrospective mm -hmm. experience of Twin Peaks all the more enjoyable to whoever we can bring that to. So, yeah, thank you as well, Khalil. Yes. Listeners, stay safe, stay sane. Professor, I have to ask you, and I already know the answer, but I need to ask this. Uh, who killed Laura Palmer? Uh, let's see. Uh, the greater entities had killed Laura Palmer in order for Laura Palmer to transcend amongst them inside of this great uh, cosmic power. So she she is dead then. She's dead yet living, just as Crazy Bob and she the is, giant. She is and dead the and yet she lives. Man. Uh, it, again, semi-serious answer. Uh, just because. Who did she allow herself to get killed with by then? Um, overall, she got herself killed and uh, pushed forward to these entities, like I was um, describing earlier. But like, who killed her? These entities. Like who or what killed like her, though? trying to make it... Oh, as, the entities, okay. Yeah, like, not necessarily the entities killed her off, but whatever method to become part of these entities, uh, that act killed her off. Um, again, I think that it's going to be something that's going to be a rather interesting and complex answer that the closest that I can mm -hmm. give is kind of close to a Jacoby answer in which Laura Palmer accepted her mm. quote-unquote death. I'm getting I'm getting uh, images in my head right now of like the Disney uh, Little Mermaid where, you know, Ursula takes Ariel spoilers for Little Mermaid, by the <laughs> way, if you're hoping not to get spoiled, a Little Mermaid in our Twin Peaks podcast, <laughs> you should have gone in knowing that was going to happen. Yes. Um, Ariel trades her voice, you know, which is like a golden orb that comes out of her mouth. And uh, then she allows herself to have legs 
and then she has to swim desperately to the surface and can live on the surface. I imagine that's what Laura did in some way. You say she, she signed her contract. The golden orb left her body and then she f- went away. Now, to what equivalent is between the ocean and land? She left our world for whatever that equivalent is. You know, you should have brought this up in the previous episode when literally there was an orb that threw into Cooper's throat. So maybe there's like this reverse Little Mermaid situation going on for him, <laughs> in which something now is in his throat. You know, I think there's always room for golden orbs. I think we're fine. <laughs> uh, I think we're we were we were an episode off on our orbs and on our Little Red Riding Hoods. OK, yes. it's we're even now. Yes. Um, with that, I thank you. Uh, any last words of wisdom to leave our audience with? Um, as far putting you on the spot, Professor, <laughs> putting me straight up on the spot. Uh, keep out, keep an eye out for oddities because it'll only become all the more entertaining if you end up discovering uh, Laura Palmer in your dreams. Watch out for the cream corn. <laughs> Put the lime in the coconut. Put the lime in the coconut.